Chapter Twenty Six of Verney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Black. Verney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Press. Chapter Twenty Six. Chapter Twenty Six The Meeting at the Moonlight in the Park, The Tired Window in the Hole, The Letters. The old admiral showed such a strong disposition to take offence at Charles if he should presume, for a moment, to doubt the truth of the narrative that was just communicated to him, that the latter would not anger him by so doing but confined his observation upon it to saying that he considered it was very wonderful and very extraordinary, and so on, which very well satisfied the old man. The day was now, however, getting far advanced, and Charles Holland began to think of his engagement with the vampire. He read and read the letter over and over again, but he could not come to a correct conclusion as to whether it intended to imply that he, Sir Francis Varney, would wish to fight him at the hour and place mentioned, or merely give him a meeting as a preliminary step. He was rather, on the whole, inclined to think that some explanation would be offered by Varney, but at all events he persevered in his determination of going well armed, lest anything in the shape of treachery should be intended. As nothing of any importance occurred now in the interval of time till nearly midnight, we will at once step to that time, and our readers will suppose it to be a quarter to twelve o'clock at night, and young Charles Holland on the point of leaving the house to keep his appointment by the polar oak with the mysterious Sir Francis Varney. He placed his loaded pistols conveniently in his pocket, so that at the moment's notice he could lay hands on them, and then wrapping himself up in a travelling cloak he had brought with him to Benerworth Hall, he prepared to leave his chamber. The moon still shone, although now somewhat on the vein, and although there were certainly main clouds in the sky, they were but of a light fleecy character, and very little interrupted the rays of a light that came from the nearly full disk of the moon. From his window he could not perceive the spot in the park where he was to meet Barney, because the room in which he was occupied, not a sufficiently high place in the house, to enable him to look over a belt of trees that stopped the view. From almost any of the upper windows the pollard oak could be seen. It so happened now that the admiral had been placed in a room immediately above the one occupied by his nephew, and, as his mind was full of how he should manage with regard to arranging the preliminaries of the duel between Charles and Barney on the morrow, he found it difficult to sleep, and after remaining in bed about twenty minutes, 
and finding that each moment he was only getting more and more restless, he adopted a course which he always did under such circumstances. He rose and dressed himself again, intending to sit up for an hour and then turn into bed and try a second time to get to sleep. But he had no means of getting a light, so he drew the heavy curtain from before the window and let in as much of the moonlight as he could. This window commanded a most beautiful and extensive view. From from it the eye could carry completely over the tops of the tallest trees, so that there was no interruption whatever to the prospect, which was as extensive as it was delightful. Even the admiral, who never would confess to seeing much beauty in scenery where water formed not a large portion of it, could not resist opening his window and looking out, with a considerable degree of admiration, upon wood and dale, as they were illuminated by the moon's rays, softened and rendered, if anything, more beautiful by the light vapours through which they had to struggle to make their way. Charles Holland, in order to avoid the likelihood of meeting with any one who would question him as to where he was going, determined upon leaving his room by the balcony, which, as we are aware, presented ample facilities for his so doing. He cast a glance at the portrait in the panel before he left the apartment, and then saying, For you, dear Flora, for you I essay this meeting with the fearful original of that portrait. He immediately opened his window and stepped out on the balcony. Young and active as was Charles Holland, the descent from that balcony presented to him no difficulty whatever, and he was, in a very few moments, safe in the garden of Bannerworth Hall. He never thought for a moment to look up, or he would, in an instant, have seen the white head of his old uncle, as it was projected over the sill of the window of his chamber. The drop of a chance from the balcony of his window just made sufficient noise to attract the admiral's attention, and, then, before he could think of making any alarm, he saw Charles walking hastily across a grass plot, which was sufficiently in the light of the moon to enable the admiral at once to recognize him and leave no sort of doubt as to his positive identity. Of course, upon discovering that it was Charles, the necessity for making an alarm no longer existed, and, indeed, not knowing what it was that had induced him to leave his chamber, a moment's reflection suggested to him the propriety of not even calling to Charles, lest he should defeat some discovery which he might be about to make. He has heard something or seen something, thought the admiral, and is going to find out what it is. I only wish I was with him. But up here I can do nothing at all, that's quite clear. Charles, he saw, walked very rapidly, and like a man who has some fixed destination, which wishes to reach as quickly as possible. When he dived among the trees which skirted on the side of the flower gardens, 
The admiral was more puzzled than ever, and he said, Now, where on earth is he off to? He is fully dressed and has his cloak about him. After a few moments' reflection, he decided that, having seen something suspicious, Charles must have got up and dressed himself to fathom it. The moment this idea became fairly impressed upon his mind, he left his bedroom and descended to where one of the brothers he knew was sitting up, keeping watch during the night. It was Henry who was so on guard, and when the admiral came into the room, it uttered an expression of surprise to find him up, for it was now some time past twelve o'clock. I have come to tell you that Charles has left the house, said the admiral. Left the house? Yes, I saw him just now go across the garden. And you are sure it was he? Quite sure. I saw him by the moonlight cross the green plot. Then you may depend he has seen or heard something, and gone along to find out what it is rather than give any alarm. That is just what I think. It must be so. I will follow him, if you can show me exactly which way he went. That I can easily, and in case I should have made any mistake, which it is not all likely, we can go to his room first and see if it is empty. A good thought, certainly, that will at once put an end to all doubt upon the question. They both immediately proceeded to Charles' room, and then the admiral's accuracy of identification of his nephew was immediately proved by finding that Charles was not there and that the window was wide open. "'You see I am right,' said the admiral. "'You are,' cried Henry. "'But what are we here?' "'Where?' "'Here, on the dressing-table. "'Here are no less than three letters, all laid as it on purpose to catch the eye of the first one who might enter the room. Indeed! You perceive them? Henry held them to the light, and after a moment's inspection of them, he said, in a voice of much surprise, Good God! What is the meaning of this? The meaning of what? The letters are addressed to the parties in the house here. Do you not see? To whom? One to Admiral Bell. The dears! Another to me, and the third to my sister Flora. There is some new mystery here. The Admiral looked at the superscription of one of the letters which was handed to him in silent amazement. Then he cried, Set down the light, and let us read them. Harry did so and then they simultaneously opened the epistles which were severally addressed to them. There was a silence, as of the very grave, for some moments, and then the old admiral staggered to a seat, as he exclaimed, Am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? Is this possible? said Harry, in a voice of deep emotion, as he allowed a note addressed to him to drop on to the floor. Then it, what does yours say? 
cried the old admiral in a louder tone. Read it. What says yours? Read it. I am amazed. The letters were exchanged, and read by each with the same breathless attention they had bestowed upon their own, after which they both looked at each other in silence, pictures of amazement and the most absolute state of bewilderment. Not to keep our readers in suspense, we at once transcribe each of the letters. The one to the admiral contained these words. My dear uncle, of course you will perceive the prudence of keeping this letter to yourself, but the fact is I have now made up my mind to leave Bannerworth Hall. Flora Bannerworth is not now the person she was when first I knew her and loved her. Such being the case, and she having altered, not I, she cannot accuse me of fickleness. I still love the Flora Bannerworth I first knew, but I cannot make my wife one who is subject to the visitations of a vampire. I have remained here long enough now to satisfy myself that this vampire business is no delusion. I am quite convinced that it is a positive fact, and that, after death, Flora will herself become one of the horrible existences known by that name. I will communicate to you from the first large city on the continent whither I am going, at which I make any stay, and in the meantime make what excuses you like at the Bannerworth Hall, which I advise you to leave as quickly as you can, and believe me to be, my dear uncle, yours to lie, Charles Holland. Harry's letter was this. My dear sir, if you calmly and dispassionately consider the painful and distressing circumstances in which your family are placed, I am sure that, far from blaming me for the step which this note will announce to you I have taken, you will be the first to give me credit for acting with an amount of prudence and foresight which was highly necessary under the circumstances. If the supposed visit of the vampire to your sister Flora had turned out, as at first I hoped they would, a delusion, and being in any satisfactory manner explained away, I should certainly have felt pride and pleasure in fulfilling my engagement to that young lady. You must, however, yourself feel that the amount of evidence in favour of a belief that an actual vampire had visited Flora enforces a conviction of its truth. I cannot, therefore, make her my wife under such very singular circumstances. Perhaps you may blame me for not taking at once advantage of the permission given me to forego my engagement when first I came to your house. But the fact is, I did not then in the least believe in the existence of the vampire but since a positive conviction of that most painful fact has now forced itself upon me, I beg to decline the honour of an alliance which I had at one time 
look forward to with the most considerable satisfaction. I shall be on the continent as fast as conveniences can take me. Therefore, should you entertain any romantic notion of calling me to an account for a course of proceeding, I think perfectly and fully justifiable, you will not find me. Accept my assurances of my respect of yourself and pity for your sister, and believe me to be, my dear sir, your sincere friend, Charles Holland. These two letters might well make the admiral stare at Harry Bannerworth and Harry stare at him. An occurrence so utterly and entirely unexpected by both of them was enough to make them doubt the evidence of their own senses. But there were the letters as a damning evidence of the outrageous fact, and Charles Holland was gone. It was the admiral who first recovered from the stunning effect of the epistles, and he, with a gesture of perfect fury, exclaimed, The scoundrel, the cold-blooded villain, I renounce him forever, he is no nephew of mine, he is some damned impostor, nobody with a dash of my family blood in his veins would have acted so to save himself from a thousand deaths. Who shall we trust now, said Harry, when those whom we take to our inmost hearts deceive us thus? This is the greatest shock I have yet received. If there be a pang greater than another, surely it is to be found in the faithlessness and heartlessness of one we loved and trusted. He is a scoundrel, roared the admiral. Damn him! He'll die on a dung hill, and that's too good a place for him. I cast him off. I'll fan him out, and old as I am, I'll fight him. I'll wring his neck, the rascal, and as for poor dear Miss Flora, God bless her. I'll, I'll marry her myself and make her an admiral. I'll marry her myself, or that I should be ankle to such a rascal. Calm yourself, said Harry. No one can blame you. Yes, you can. I had no right to be his uncle, and I was an old fool to love him. The old man sat down, and his voice became broken with emotion as he said, Sir, I tell you, I will have dying willingly rather than this should ever penit. This will kill me now. I shall die now of shame and grief. Tears gushed from the admiral's eyes, and the sight of the noble old man's emotion did much to calm the anger of Harry, which, although he said but little, was boiling at his heart like a volcano. Admiral Bell, he said, you have nothing to do with this business. We cannot blame you for the heartlessness of another. I have but one favor to ask of you. What? What can I do? Say no more about him at all. I can't help saying something about him. You have to turn me out of the house. Heaven forbid! What for? 
because I'm his ankle. He's them old fool of an ankle that has always thought so much of him. No, my good sir, that was a fault on the right side, and cannot discredit you. I thought him the most perfect of human beings. Oh, if I could but have guessed this! It was impossible. Such a duplicity never was equalled in this world. It was impossible to foresee it. Hold, hold! Did he give you fifty pounds? What? Did he give you fifty pounds? Give me fifty pounds. Most decidedly not. What made you think of such a thing? Because today he borrowed fifty pounds of me, he said, to lend to you. I never heard of the transaction until this moment. The villain. No doubt, sir, he wanted that amount to expedite his progress abroad. Well, now, damn, if an angel had come to me and said, Hello, Admiral Bell, your nephew Charles Holland is a thundering rogue, I should have said, You're a liar. This is fighting against facts, my dear sir. He is gone. Mention him no more. Forget him, as I shall endeavour myself to do, and persuade my poor sister to do. Poor girl! What can we say to her? Nothing but give her all the letters, and let her be at once satisfied of the worthlessness of him she loved. The best way. A woman's pride will then come to her help. I hope it will. She is of an honourable race, and I am sure she will not condescend to shed a tear for such a man as Charles Holland has proved himself to be. Damn him! I'll find him out and make him fight you. It shall give you satisfaction. No, no. No? But it shall. I cannot fight with him. You cannot? Certainly not. He is too far beneath me now. I cannot fight on honourable terms with one who I despise as too dishonourable to contend with. I have nothing now but silence and contempt. I have thought, for I'll break his neck when I see him, or he shall break mine, the villain. I am ashamed to stay here, my young friend. How mistaken of you you take of this matter, my dear sir. As Admiral Bell, a gentleman, a brave officer, and a man of the purest and most unblemished honour, you confer a distinction upon us by your presence here. The admiral wrung Harry by the hand, as he said, Tomorrow. Wait until tomorrow. We will talk over this matter tomorrow. I cannot tonight. I have not patience. But tomorrow, my dear boy, we'll have it all out. God bless you. Good night. End of chapter 26 Recording by Liz Black Italy